You're listening to the podcast version of Intrigue Explained, the weekly show where two former Australian diplomats and their friends break down the biggest stories in international news in a way that hopefully entertains and resonates with you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode for 2023 of Intrigue Explained. I'm Dimitri, and with me is John. Hello, John. Dimitri, how are you? I am well. Uh, for those of you who are tuning in to us for the first time, uh, we are both former Australian diplomats, and we now currently variously run organizations dedicated to trying to explain complex things in ways that we hope make sense, but don't put you to sleep. That is a narrow target to hit, but that is what we aim for. I run uh, Explain Trade, which pretty much does what it says on the tin. Uh, And John, you run International Intrigue. What's International Intrigue? It is a, a newsletter which does exactly what you just described, tries to interpret the world of global affairs and geopolitics and foreign policy for folks who don't live in that uh, in that swamp each and every day. Uh, it's obviously becoming a far more important part of how the world works, understanding geopolitics and the various uh, machinations. So we try and do that in a way that's fun and engaging. Can you imagine how great it would be if the world was so quiet and boring that no one had to care? Yeah, it, that, w- that would be nice, but also we'd be out of jobs. So, you know. True. Uh- Global chaos is worth <laughs> it for me to be able to afford nice things. Uh, in, in my in my more uh, in my more sort of wistful moments, I imagine a, a peaceful world where I live by a lake and fish, and then I also realize I'd go absolutely insane. So yeah, yeah. I feel like the sweet spot is sort of in some ways parts of this week when it was just all balloon related news all the time. We are now shooting down mm-hmm. like a balloon every fifteen minutes. John, and then there are a lot of private companies who have been doing weather research, going, "Ah, oh, come on, we just raised money for that." <laughs> I saw, I saw. I think it was uh, the former National Security Advisor John Bolton was being interviewed, and he spoke at great length and very seriously with his bushy moustache about the possibility of balloons being used to deliver nuclear weapons. Uh, now, John, you are not a national security expert as it were, but you are in this space. Would you say it is time for our American viewers to march outside and start firing rifles wildly into the sky? Yes, I would, Dimitri. Excellent. (laughs) No, the only reason I'm not a national security advisor, to be fair, is because I don't have a bushy moustache. I mean, I'm convinced that's 95% of the reason he's had the career he has, is that it's difficult not to take what he says uh, with seriousness, even though what he says often doesn't merit seriousness. Meanwhile, the two of us managed to look simultaneously 14 and 48, uh, like yes. <laughs> without any gravitas on our stupid baby faces. Uh, Next week, I'm going to have a moustache, so you're warned. If, if you're listening to the podcast version of Intrigue Explained, uh, don't look our photos up. Just enjoy the content without knowing. You'll be you'll be better off for it. Amazingly, our voices are slightly less annoying than our faces, so there we go. Th- that is what the market research seems to suggest. 
Uh, so this week, uh, as we try to once again return to our best practices from episode one of staying within our 45-minute time slot, uh, we are going to cover our major story, uh, which is geopolitics after the Syria and Turkey earthquake. We are going to try to, in in a very perfunctory but hopefully a useful way, catch you up on really the last decade of history of the region in terms of the Syrian civil war, Turkey's role in that war, and then fast forward to today and look at what the crisis means and what it could change and what it spells for the region. We're also, as always, going to look at three stories from international intrigue this week that struck us as something that was worth bringing to your attention. We're going to look at the mass protests that gripped Israel on uh, Monday this week. We are going to look at the surprise resignation of Moldova's pro-EU government. To be fair, it was immediately replaced by another pro-EU government. A pro-EU uh, government. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, maybe, I should, maybe I shouldn't have done that reveal, like made it sound more ominous. Yeah. And we are going to look very briefly at the trip of the president of Iran to China and some of Xi's comments around that and the general maneuvering of China versus some of these states that find themselves in opposition to the West. And that's going to be our show. And we're going to dive straight into it, uh, even though we would frankly much rather just do 15 more minutes of balloon jokes. So with that... Each week. Each week, every week, we are the balloon channel that occasionally reluctantly delves into some other stuff. So until the uh, next thing comes along, exactly, <laughs> then we're that. <laughs> yeah, it, but it's got to be funnier than the balloon thing because, like, that is a high bar to yeah. clear. Uh, really, so John, it is. Set us up. People are protesting in Israel. Tell us why. Tell us what's going on. Yeah. Exactly. So it's actually been going on for a little while now, um, maybe maybe a week and a half or so. But as you alluded to at the start, um, this past Monday saw tens of thousands of, of Israelis protest in Jerusalem um, and across the country, um, which is pretty, I mean, I wouldn't say, un, uh, you know, rare in Israel, but it's, it's certainly notable that the protests are at this scale, tens of thousands, arguably hundreds of thousands um, across the country. And it's, as I said, it's been going on for a little while. What they're upset about, what the protesters are upset about, um, is a slate of reforms that is being proposed by the government, um, led by the indefatigable Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, and the idea here is that they want to re they want to reform Israel's top court, so you know their equivalent of the Supreme Court or or, or whatever. Um, what's I think got in Benjamin Netanyahu's Craw, so to speak, is that the government has, so the, the, the top court has, you know, like any top court, a fair bit of power to block what the government of the day wants to do. Um, and his reforms would essentially give parliament, the Israeli parliament, the ability to overrule Supreme Court decisions um, with a simple majority. So, you know, Supreme Court says, you can't, you know, this law, this bill that you want to pass is is um, not okay. And then they say, okay, well, we're going to pass, we're going to pass a veto on your veto, as it were. Um, so that that's quite a rare thing. If I think most viewers and listeners will understand how that court government dynamic generally interplays in a democracy, and it's certainly pretty rare to have a government be able to vote down a Supreme Court decision with a simple majority. 
Um, so that's one thing. And then the second thing is that he wants a lot more control over the committee that appoints the judges to that court. So this is the idea of, you know, court stacking, um, which you might kind of be familiar with if you're if you're familiar with US Supreme Court politics, the idea that if you stack 80% of your your favoured judges on a court, then you don't need to worry about the decisions they make. So that, that's kind of what's happening. The protests are obviously against that, saying that they that these reforms threaten Israelis, Israel's democracy. And I think it's it's a fascinating thing because there's there's the strictly Israeli side to this, which is as all local issues always are really complicated. Uh, Israel doesn't have a formal written constitution that the court can rely on to issue judgments. So instead, in ruling whether laws are legal or not, it relies on this evolving kind of web of precedent. Uh, so it's kind of, mm. I mean, I'm not a lawyer and you very much are, but from a, from a judicial standpoint, I suppose you could argue it's on slightly shakier ground than something like the US Supreme Court. Um on the other hand, this is a really extreme thing to do. By definition, an Israeli government has a majority in the Knesset. It's a parliamentary system. Right. So so it's almost like basically saying, if, if you say that all you require to overturn a Supreme Court ruling is a simple majority in the Knesset, the government will almost always be able to do it. So you've virtually eliminated uh, the Supreme Court as a check on le on the legislature if you've, you've made it redundant basically haven't you yeah uh you'd basically be relying well, on his on his coalition fracturing or something else happening in order for him not to be able to do it right I, the, and i think that's an interesting point because you know there's an there's a sort of a famous political idea that you shouldn't ever do anything that you wouldn't want your enemy your political enemies to be able to have so the idea that you don't want to pass laws that give you know, supreme power, because one day you'll be out of government and your enemies will be able to use them against you. But I think, I mean, Bibi Netanyahu is as experienced a kind of democratic politician as exists on planet Earth right now, probably. Um, and I, you know, he's aware of that kind of idea. And I think the, the fact that he's willing to push ahead with these kinds of reforms, you know, there's probably internal politics with his hardline coalition mm -hmm. pushing him to do this. So we don't know if this is his kind of like, if he'd do this in a vacuum, perhaps not. But the fact that he's doing it, I think speaks to how com comfortable he feels in the right wing domination of Israeli politics at the moment that, you know, at least not in the foreseeable future, will the left get in charge and be able to do things that a, that a court might stop, might have stopped. So I think it, it sort of speaks to his power. But I guess a question for you is, is this kind of emblematic, not just of Israeli politics, but of global politics of when a government, particularly right-wing governments, but extreme governments, I would say, of both sides, in this case, it's a right-wing government, that they just want to get rid of all these democratic checks and balances, that this is, this is their MO. Uh, I think I think it it is. Um, I would say first of all, one thing it's emblematic of is that principle you were talking about before about don't do don't hand or don't instill any kind of power dynamic that you wouldn't want your political rivals to use. Really relies on a party framework where everybody is thinking in terms of long term legacy of the party. It doesn't work as well when right. you've got like a Trump or a Bolsonaro, or perhaps even a Netanyahu, who maybe just isn't that invested in what happens to conservatives that the aren't them. 
Like he's like, oh, 10 yeah. years from now, they're going to screw my successor's successor. Meh. Who gives a damn? This is about keeping, doing what I want to do and removing those checks. Um, I will say though, that it does feel like it's a broader pattern. Um, you see this a lot in with the Tory party in the UK of effectively using the line that any check on what a democratically elected government wants to do is yeah. undemocratic. You see this line, whether it was, you know, on the EU with the ECJ, the European Court uh, of Human Rights. Um, you see this in the US with attacks on institutions and checks and balances. Um, it's this kind of idea that we don't just populism. live in democracy. It's populism and it's like this yearning for direct democracy, but not really. Um, and mm. I think it's it's quite yeah. dangerous as a concept, even if, as you say, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an intoxicating argument, isn't it? Because to argue against it, you basically have to be arguing against the will of the people and saying, you know, they don't always make the best decisions or that we shouldn't go with, you know, you have to argue some sort of tyranny of the majority argument. And I think in, in this era of sound bites and, you know, poor faith arguing it's really difficult to to make that point because your enemies your political enemies just say oh they 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 think they know that they're, they're better than you they're elites you know so i i, I think yeah it's, it's an interesting point you make i think it's yeah. um you know true sadly <laughs> um speaking of actually not right-wing governments we can move on to our next story uh john i think you're you're all over this one so why don't you tell us about moldova Yes, well, as a, as a long-term um, expert on Moldovan politics, I'll take this one, Dimitri, obviously. Um, <laughs> no, what I've learned over well, the last their week names, is that, John. Uh, I to, yeah, I, this, this is what I was going to throw to you, but I, I'll have a go. Um, so this story is that late last week, last February, um, Moldova's Prime Minister, uh, Natalia Gavrilita. How did I do? Gavrilita? Uh, Gav Gavrilita. Close mm -hmm. enough? Yeah. Okay, there we go. Uh, we'll, we'll get the we'll get the resident Ukrainian to do it. <laughs> um, uh, but she she resigned last Friday along with all of her government. Um, so a, a little bit of background on on well, firstly, a bit of background on Moldova. It obviously borders Ukraine. Uh, it's been worried throughout this uh, last year of the war in Ukraine spilling over its borders. It has a small strip. Uh, on its border with Ukraine called Transnistria that is technically Moldovan sovereign territory, but it has had a permanent station of, of about 1,500 Russian troops and is widely seen to be fairly pro-Russian. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's kind of like a breakaway region yet, but it's kind of in that space of like Luhansk, Donetsk, Russian influence, whatever. So that that's where Moldova is. Gavrilita, their now former... PM was very pro-EU. She'd put um, Moldova on a path to becoming um, much more closely integrated with the EU. I think they were on the path to a session along with Ukraine um, for about a year or so. Uh, and uh, she was elected on that platform as a reformer of, you know, the old Soviet kind of politics. They were certainly looking West, let's put it that way. Um, now, the president, uh, Maya Sandu, so they have a president prime prime minister kind of situation. She has appointed a new PM, uh, and that PM seems to be it was a former national security advisor and seems to largely be fairly continuous policy wise with um, Gavrilita. So it's weird because 
again, I, I don't know enough about Moldovan politics to sort of say what happened to cause her resignation. There was some sense that she wasn't able to get the domestic support for those reforms. Um, but then the president, who is popular and has a you know enough of a majority um, to be able to appoint her successor, is doing is expected to do the same thing. So I suspect this is a situation where there were, you know, internal politics in Moldova that whether it was her personally, um, the former Prime Minister personally not having the power that she once had or, or, or something, because I don't think this changes Moldova's general trajectory away from Russia and towards the West. Um, not, not as I see it anyway. I think what makes this more than just a local Moldovan story, though, is the pressure that was being applied on the country, both intentionally and incidentally, by Russia as a result of its invasion of Ukraine. Um, Moldova's energy grid uh, was kind of hit in two ways. Uh, the stop, uh, it was, um, it was connected to the Ukrainian, is partially connected to the Ukrainian energy grid, which means that attacks on the Ukrainian energy grid are taking, uh, have consequences Moldova. for Moldovan mm -hmm. power, but they also uh, have relied on Russian gas. And so the sort of fluctuations in gas prices saw inflation in Moldova go through the roof. And there were popular protests around that. Um, Russia right. has been sort of making threatening noises in Moldova's direction in the way that it does for quite some time. And most recently, and what sort of maybe correlation rather than causation, uh, Russian missiles flew over Moldovan territory. Um, kind of not, they didn't hit Moldova, but that triggered a sort of national security crisis for Moldova. Well, if we see what happens over a balloon, imagine a missile flying over your country, right? Like it's a fairly, yeah. fairly like poignant violation of your airspace. Right. And I think the Moldovans can see what happens when, uh, across their border. Um, and so, so kind of all of this led President Zelensky to issue this official warning that Russia was yeah, going to is, attempt to destabilize uh, Moldova. Now, for the, for, I don't think this looks like a destabilization. Um, well, but, but interestingly, when, when the prime minister resigned and the president appointed or uh, announced that she would appoint this, the, the new sort of prime minister who's pro-EU, she basically confirmed what Zelensky had been saying for months, which had been that there was a Russian plot to overthrow the Moldovan government from the inside. So we had Zelensky saying it for a while. And I think there was a, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but there was a feeling a little bit that like Zelensky might've been a bit, might've been a bit paranoid or getting outside his lane a little bit in terms of that. Um, perhaps, I don't know. Um, but the president of Moldova, like could basically confirmed his account, which, which is, Interesting because if if Russia had plans to overthrow the government, it's clear to me now that they've gone Moldova's gone the other way and Russia's Russia's efforts have been, you know, have shot them in, shot themselves in the foot a little bit. Yeah, I think it's 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 one thing that's become abundantly clear watching Russia's intelligence services lately is that it is entirely possible that there was yeah. a plan and that they had completely bungled it. Um, you know, these are also the people who were saying that. Uh, Russian troops would be welcomed with open arms, um, and the people who, Kiev, yeah, or and the people who, when they were told to buy three SIM cards to plant in the fake Ukrainian saboteurs Nazi den, uh, bought three copies of the Sims video game. Um, so it's not necessarily that these. Are, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> that is the is the greatest story ever. Uh, 
but like <laughs> these are not um i think i think generally the public massively overstates how easy it is for a foreign intelligence service of any competence to actually overthrow a government kind of on its own I think that's right um even you know the the cia coups throughout latin america were overwhelmingly about yeah. supporting existing factions um, I'm not even going to touch with a thousand foot stick how stupid the allegations that um, the U.S. ambassador and you know George Soros triggered Euromaidan or the uh, uh, the Arab Spring are. You know, is this idea that they can just wave a magic wand and create a revolution? Um, I think you know if if the CIA and Mossad can't do it, Russian clowns definitely can't. But it looks like they might have been trying. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't have anything to add to that. I think it's a really important message to to remember that it's it's good for conspiracy theories and John Clancy thrillers, um, but it's really hard to overthrow a government in any kind of competent, neat, calm way where you're going to get the result you want. It's probably easier to kind of destabilize a government and cause problems, but you know you kind of have no idea what's going to happen after that. Exactly, and i'm not sure if that last little bit was newsworthy i just really wanted to dunk on the fsb for a few solid minutes <laughs> and you know it's our show we can do what we like all right exactly our, our next topic uh back back very much in your turf area of expertise uh iran has gone looking for friends in beijing and it may have found them well, yes. Yeah. So this is the story that uh, the Iranian uh, leader, Ibrahim uh, Raisi, I think his name is pronounced. And again, forgive me, folks, um, for butchering uh, names. But he uh, visited Beijing for a state visit, which is the first state visit by an Iranian president, I think, in about 20 years. Uh, and certainly Raisi's first visit to China. Um, so it's a big deal. Like in a vacuum, this would be a big deal. A state visit to China is a big deal on its own. First one in 20 years is a big deal. Um, so, so you have that. That's It's a big deal. But what's behind it is even more interesting. And that's this idea that um, late last year, Xi Jinping visited the Middle East. Uh, most notably, he went to Saudi Arabia and signed all manner of various, you know, co mutual cooperation and development uh pieces of paper as, as presidents and diplomats love to love to think it's a big win. Um, but what they do signal is a is the nature of the relationship, right? And Xi Jinping doesn't go to Saudi Arabia and sign those documents if they don't want to have a good or at least a better relationship. The problem there is that Saudi Arabia and Iran are historically mortal enemies. Um, and Iran got very, very ticked off that Xi Jinping went to Saudi Arabia and didn't go to Iran. So in the, in, in the intervening months, what are we, two, two, three months since since she went to, sell two months since she went to Saudi Arabia, Iran's been making noises that I think have been interesting, but probably pretty troubling for Beijing, saying things like, well, the relationship with China is not what it was. We are concerned about its direction. Trade isn't good enough. Investment isn't good enough. All this kind of stuff. So Iran clearly was very ticked off. Uh, and that's not good for China because China... You know, I think China has probably got some reservations about Iran and the way it does business, particularly its proximity to Russia and, and the in the military sense and in the Ukraine war sense. But it is a they, they are natural partners because they are anti-US hegemony, anti-US global order. So I think Beijing wanted to fix that at least superficially, just to keep Iran quiet and you know keep things 
keep things um, on an even footing. So, that, so that's kind of what happened um, with, with Ricey's visit. I don't know if you've got any kind of extra insights to add to that. No, something I was thinking about is, you know, we've got this quote from Premier uh, from Xi saying China mm. supports Iran in safeguarding national sovereignty, resisting unilateralism and bullying. And I was just thinking, if you kind of think about that message, it is this emerging unifying message among a number of states whose primary concern is that the West not interfere in the things that they want to do, especially domestically. They don't, or anyone interferes, but they're talking about the West. Uh, and that there is this axis of, they're not necessarily allies. You know, even, even the BRICs don't have solidarity on this, but it is a range of states who all kind of position themselves in opposition to what they see as interventionism in their domestic affairs by a US-led West. Uh, and so you do have these, you know, it is a strange thing that an Islamic theocracy, an incredibly hardline Islamic theocracy, would be kind of courting China, whose relationship with its domestic, with religion generally, and with its domestic Muslim minority hasn't historically been the best to massively sugarcoat that. Um, but you do, you do have this kind of enemy of my enemy or this unifying string. Do you think that's, do you think that's what's happening here? I do. I think, I think you've put your finger on it. It's, um, you know, China's overarching vision for the world is one in which it can exist uh, without anybody telling it what to do, without anybody constraining it. Um, you know, I think there's arguments about whether it wants world domination in the same way that US did. I, I tend to think it doesn't, but it definitely wants to be able to say, go jump to anybody it wants to. And part of that is that it needs to roll back, at least to some extent, the US liberal global order. Um, and the most effective way, you know, sitting down in the strategic kind of war room 15, 20 years ago, the most effective way to do that is to appeal to every country that has similar feelings about American led world order to, you know, Russia, Brazil, as we've said, um, uh, China, a bunch of Southeast Asian countries, Iran, much of the Middle East, and say, hey, listen, we, we don't really care what you're doing. Don't bother us. We won't bother you. But where we will come together is pushing back against the bad people over there who want to tell you what to do. Um, and it's, you know, it's a compelling vision for the world if you're an Iranian theocracy. What, what sounds better than being able to do exactly what you want to do without sanctions or, you know, with, with at least pressure to roll back sanctions, um, being able to freely trade, like all these kinds of things. China's promising that if you follow us or at least you stand with us, we can get rid of all those things you hate. So it's a compelling vision. Um, you know, some folks might say it's nihilistic and cynical, but in, in another way, it's like, well, that's just quite a natural thing that people want, right? Like you don't want people peering over your back fence. If, if The first way you stand on your own is to say, um, you know, stop looking in my backyard. Is there, is there an element of, I don't want to say paranoia, but what unites almost all of these regimes, uh, in a lot of cases, many of these regimes, I should say, is that they sort of live in fear of being removed from power. And the two ways that can happen are a domestic uprising, which they build a security apparatus to contain, 
and then some external actor. And so there's a sense of if we if we leave each other alone, if we don't interfere in our ability to quash the domestic, we can unite against external pressures. Absolutely. And I think they're often not as nicely split up as you just said. I think external pressures and domestic uprisings are, you know, to the point we were talking about in Moldova, you know, there's probably you know, not to speculate too wildly because I have absolutely no idea, but like I'd be surprised if there wasn't some CIA encouragement in in the Iranian protests. And I would be surprised if there wasn't some, you know, MI6 uh, angle on various different uprisings in Russia and China. Like I'm not saying, again, certainly they aren't causing it and they can't lead it, but like I'd be shocked if they, if they weren't sort of, let's put it this way, paying very close attention to it. So yeah. not only do you have this idea of China telling Iran or any country in a similar position, hey, we don't care what you do domestically to, to your people um, beyond, you know, vaguely worded principles, but we aren't going to be working with them in any sense. You don't have to be stressed about us having agents in your, I mean, of course they do, but, you know, that's that's the, the message is like, not only, not only we will not tell you what to do, we won't bother you. So it's like this dual angle of just live and let live. Uh, which is, I think, a very compelling message. I don't know if it's great for the world order, certainly not great for the world order and people, for people like us who grew up in and have profited from the mm. way things have been for the last 80 years. But I mean, I try not to be morally like equivalent, but I also try not to be pro-Western just blindly. And I, I can understand why these countries sit there and put their, their, their differences aside because China's offering a compelling vision that will make their world not the iranian people necessarily but the iranian leaders the people who are religious hardliners it makes things a lot better for them yeah um and it's something certainly some something to watch as this sort of access uh, of countries emerges to, and whether whether it can form an yeah. effective I, I bridge of opposition or not is still to be determined but it's really interesting to watch right I should say it's not just Iran too, right? Like it's been, China's been trying to do this in Venezuela. It's been doing this all across Africa. Anywhere where your your government isn't doing what the US would have it do in as a good global citizen, to use that phrase, China will be there knocking on doors saying, isn't isn't this whole thing bullshit? Let's, let's, let's not do this anymore. Come with us and we'll let you do what you want. Plus maybe we'll invest or whatever, which was part of the Iranian visit too, was like, you need to promise more investments in like a train line and the national airport and stuff. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's not just like, I should say, it's not just like Iran wants the US off its back. They do, but they also want China to be, to fill the gap of, yeah. of the world order as well. What's important to remember, and maybe, you know, we should move on, but is that no one wants a vacuum. Um, no one wants the US to roll back without China stepping up because a vacuum is even scarier than a world order that you kind of know and have built your architecture around dealing with. Yeah, I think that's a good point to, to kind of finish that one off on. Uh, and that brings us to- I'm not sure our... if you can hear this, Dimitri, but like there's like ice slamming into the windows here. So I apologize if there's any no. noise of like pattering ice smashing the window, but Chicago in February, right? <laughs> that's not just people outside, just like Chinese intelligence <laughs> officers outside up. pelting your windows. <laughs> um, Could well be. Sovereignty. Uh, that's why I've got the shutters down. 
Uh, and that brings us to to our main story uh, of the week. This is something we talk, we tease, I should say, we, we spoke about last week um, when the earthquake first hit, and we didn't cover it last week in too much detail because we felt it was too soon. Um, it's still, frankly, it'll feel like too soon forever, but the yeah, consequences exactly. of, the geopolitical consequences of this horrendous earthquake are significant. Um, and it's worth having a discussion about what they mean, as well as, I think, uh, a fairly, a, our best truncated version to just catch you up on what has been happening in this, along this Turkey-Syrian border, because it is so fundamental to world peace, to geopolitics, to everything. So, uh, John, do you want to maybe just just start us off? Um, obviously, look, the, the earthquake happened. There have been, I think, 41,000 casualties, but take us back maybe a little bit um could you just give us a short overview of uh turkey and syria maybe beginning with the syrian civil war yeah this is yeah su such an easy task this is stuff yeah. that like your armies of people write phds on um but you know, to understand that region, you need to have a really in-depth understanding of all the different strains of religion and all this kind of stuff. But let me give you the high sort of the the overview of it um, with apologies for any kind of inaccuracies or, you know, um, leaving out the details. But we'll start the story, I guess, in 2011 um, with the Arab Spring, which folks might remember was uh, a really quick and relatively spontaneous uprising across North Africa and, and the Middle East where a bunch of different countries, Tunisia, I think it started in Tunisia yep. if, I'm, if memory serves and sort of spread very quickly in 2011 with people coming onto the streets demanding, you know, I think demanding democracy, but if not democracy, an end to the swathe of regimes that they had seen as kind of pretty authoritarian and, and not responsive to the people. Um, it was Barack Obama was in power. This was his whole idea of like America should lead behind, lead from behind by like not getting involved, but offering moral support. Um, and Syria, that, and, and the, the Arab Spring hit Syria in a big way. So there were big protests on the street of uh, on the streets of Damascus um, against Bashar al-Assad, who has been in power for the numbers escape me, but a long time, 20, I think he came to power in the early 2000s. Um, He's from a political dynasty in in Syria. Um, you might fact check that while I talk about when he came to power, but um, he's been in charge for a long time, and he's always been pretty a pretty hardline kind of leader. Um, so when the, the the protests broke out across Syria in 2011, he cracked down on them big time, like violently and and sharply, which didn't help things initially. He was he came under more pressure there were rebel groups that sprung up and basically it was the start of what we now know as the syrian civil war so in that you have two sides well no you have multiple Many sides, sides. made major sides in the civil war which were this group of rebels and other disparate political factions who had long opposed assad's regime and it's a religious thing as well here um, and then you have obviously the Syrian government, army, and the state, and they really fought a brutal, brutal war for four or five years until sort of 2015, 2016. You know, this is the kind of stuff that folks might remember from the news of suspected chemical attacks, um, carpet bombing of, a of cities, Aleppo, for example, in the north, which, you know, is an ancient 
sort of bastion of civilization has been essentially wiped off the map before the earthquake. Um, But, you know, it it was a particularly brutal civil war. Now, where it gets a little bit more complex regionally is Russia entered the war pseudo unofficially, but, you know, fairly obviously uh, on the side of Bashar al-Assad and including not just doing what like the West is doing for Ukraine now, like Russian airplanes bombed Russian airplanes and Russian pilots flew into Syrian airspace and bombed Syria. So like they were directly involved on the side of Bashar al-Assad and Turkey took the other side. Um, so they've been sort of supporting a little, probably a little less obviously, but I think pretty obviously still. Um, and they've been supporting this alliance of rebels and, and whatnot, certainly funding them and sending them weapons, but also I think shelling and bombing things along the, along the border. Um, and there's this, you know, again, it's such a complex issue. There's a, you layer on top of that, that, that Kurdistan or the Kurdish homeland sits between Syria Iraq and Turkey there on the northern kind of border if, if you've got a map to hand. Um, and Turkey has long had problems with the Kurds. The Kurds don't like the Turks, but the, the Kurds are also caught up with not liking the Syrians uh, or the, at least the Bashar al-Assad regime. So there's this... Well, and then lastly, put into the mix ISIS, which came around in, in during this period as well, which was kind of maybe the only thing everyone could kind of agree on was... They were awful. So the US kind of got involved in a way with a Western alliance under the guise of fighting ISIS, but they were sort of also on the side of the rebels. Um, so it's just this really messy mix that it, that has been going on in Syria for 11 years, which has obviously got a border with Turkey. And that and that's kind of the background. I don't know. So, how did I do? Uh, I mean, uh, a pretty good job considering the complexity of the situation because you effectively had... You had Bashar al-Assad and his Russian allies fighting the rebels and the Kurds. You had the Turks who were whose primary focus, and they launched four fairly significant military operations on Syrian territory over the period, uh, over the last decade. Their primary focus was on defeating the Kurds, but they were Kurds, also yeah. supporting the rebels to an extent, but their concern was that U.S. support was going to kind of both groups of rebels. So the Turks felt that they couldn't trust the U.S. anymore um, because they weren't just kind of backing the Turkish position. And Turkey is a member of NATO, which kind of piles another layer of complexity on top of this. And then there is a 2016 attempted military coup in, in Turkey, which further complicates the kind of relationship between the, the army, um, Erdogan, the president of uh, Turkey. Um, so, so all of this is in the mix. Um, Syria becomes uh, a pariah state. A failed on state. The world. It becomes a failed state and becomes a pariah state on the world stage. Big time. Um, that border region where the earthquake hits specifically is among the worst sort of affected parts by the... It's It's where where all the fighting was, yeah. It's where the fighting was. Um, And so you have the situation where aid can't get in um, to Syria. Aid can get into Turkey, but it's complicated near the border. Um, Mm. And that kind of... And all of this is happening at the worst possible time for a region that is just exhausted by a decade Mm. of 
horrific conflict. Yeah. So something. So okay. I mean, so we've got a bit of background there, and then the earthquake, as you said. I mean, beyond horrific, but the the regional kind of geopolitics spinning out of that is like what what might the earthquake change about the very uneasy? I wouldn't say balance of power, but the uneasy situation that was already there. And I think you know, there's a couple of things. One is that will Syria become less of a pariah state based on the fact that. You know, it it needs aid, but it's it's going to be um, not strengthened per se, but it's going to be less. Uh, it's it's harder to it's harder to make it a, a pariah state if if you know it's suffering through this earthquake. It's looking for aid. You have to have you you're basically requiring people to say no. What you've done in the past trumps the fact that you need aid now, so we're still not going to deal with you. And that's a much harder thing to do. Um, so you've got that angle, and then the the angle that I think is really interesting and. Is is President Erdogan is is up for re-election in May? Mm-hmm. Um, he was already facing a tough re-election bid. I think most folks thought he would get re-elected, but probably with a reduced um, mandate. But the 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 Turkish side of this earthquake, uh, you know, where it hit was largely in Turkey, but there has been more destruction than I think even the most cynical folks would have said in Turkey because. There is this sense that about 75,000 buildings in the region didn't meet building codes. Um, Erdogan has made part of his kind of rebuilding of Turkey, his nationalism, a construction site. We are building Turkey for the 21st century. We're, and, you know, we're, build, we're putting up apartment blocks. We're developing your cities. We're making, you know, we're making us into a modern country. And then you have what appears to be systemic corruption around building codes, um, local officials taking kickbacks to sort of, uh, you know, allow builders to get around these codes and even official government policy saying that, well, if you've built a building in 2016, you don't have to retrofit it because that would be expensive. You know, my, my point here is that there is a growing sense that a lot of this destruction could have been avoided, but for Turkey's political system. And Erdogan is so deeply representative of what Turkey's political system is that I think it's a very open question about whether Turks say, oh boy, this is a really stark demonstration of where the country is going if Erdogan is allowed to remain in charge and we are going to become a country that, I mean, forgive me for saying it, that looks a lot like Russia where you have a strong person who puts a coat of paint on stuff, but when you look behind the curtain, i.e. Russia's military now, Turkey's building codes, the country's actually falling apart. And, and, I, and you know, if Erdogan doesn't get re-elected, whole new conversation about regional geopolitics, right? Yeah. Uh, I think there's a there's a symmetry here because Erdogan was initially elected in part by railing against how unprepared Turkey was for the last earthquake. There was a massive yeah. there was a massive earthquake in, in the north, right? Uh, yeah, like a, a just uh just under a decade ago and there was a sense at the time, there was one of the things that Erdogan pledged to do was create this fund to not just rebuild Turkey, but rebuild Turkey up to code and to make sure that the government is ready and that the buildings are up to scratch. Uh, and I mean, there's an extent to which, look, you can't really prepare for an earthquake like this so that, you know, it, nothing happens. But there is this sense yeah. that initially the reaction was it, the sort of support was coming from local civil society, not from the central government. And there was this, you know, one of Erdogan's recent kind of 
Triumph's achievements is he went to this region and, as you say, issued a blanket amnesty to, to I think, like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of buildings mm. that weren't built up to code. Um, and that was for an election, kind of, right? Yeah, exactly. As a way of saying, like, look, I've just legitimized all of your homes with the stroke of a pen. Vote for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's obviously not going to be, you know, if I was a politician, I wouldn't want that clip uh, looping uh, against B-roll right. of collapsed buildings. Um, so, so he... Yeah. With that, so, mm-hmm. Sorry, I was just going to say, I, th- I think, I think you know, one of the interesting things there is that um, you know, I, I, I think he still will get reelected just because, I mean, I'm not a Turkish political expert, but it just looks from everything I've read that he still just controls so many of the levers of power that he can turn it on and, and get reelected. But like, may, like, do you want to speculate about, and it's obviously ridiculous to speculate too far in advance, but if he doesn't get reelected, what does that look like for the region? Like his, one of his main kind of driving forces is making Turkey this, this linchpin in that region, this regional power um, that everyone has to go through if you want to deal in that area, in that region. What what happens if he's not there anymore? So I think given the geographic location of Turkey, given the size of Turkey, it would take a very weak successor not to attempt to continue playing that local regional yeah. kingmaker role, um, whether it's control of the strait, whether it is just sitting halfway between China and the West in a lot of ways, whether it's sort of being the kind of government that Russia can still talk to, even though it is part of NATO. Um, so in some ways, a uh, so a, a more left, a center-left government uh, replacing him, which, by the way, if you look at the Turkish polls, at least before the earthquake, wasn't necessarily on the cards. Um, they were probably... No. You could, you could imagine a center-left coalition possibly pushing him into a runoff election, but it's 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 hard to see. Um, you know, he was he was still solidly ahead, and as you say, he controls the levers of power in a way that helps him more than it helps an equivalent politician in the UK right. or the US. I think a lot of the 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 folks who are hopeful that he is on the way out are looking and putting too much. Um, uh, important on like Istanbul's politics and you know Istanbul has famously given him a rebuke in the last couple of years with electing a, a mayor I think or at least a governor a, a prominent politician in Istanbul who was you know from the opposition side but you know Istanbul is not Turkey so I think you're absolutely right that Erdogan was probably going to get elected uh, which again brings that parallel back to Russia, right? Where the yeah, you can, exactly. you can be you can be incredibly deceived about Russian politics and the mood of the Russian nation if all you've done is hung out in in a Moscow state. and sort of talk to the people who live there. Saint Petersburg, um, yeah, 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 Moscow, Petersburg. You know, like you can. It's easy to be misled in that way, and I think Turkey has amounts of the same thing. But you know, uh, yeah. the I suppose the optimistic part of me, not that I have any particular strong sort of feeling about individual Turkish politicians. But I feel like if the allegations about the way that he has prepared the country for an earthquake, if the way that he has governed, if they are true, I want to believe that things like that still have consequences in democratic democratic countries. So less so than like about him personally, if this is true, I'm, I'm hoping that he at least is made to sweat and made to answer some really hard questions and that he isn't mm-hmm. able to completely shut out the opposition 
um, because that would, you know, you've got to at least keep hold his feet to the fire, I think, in situations like this. And yeah, it's a, region, it's a bad thing if the lesson... Yeah. Yeah, it's a bad thing if the lesson he learns is like, oh, literally nothing I do matters because yeah. I will get reelected and it doesn't have any consequences. Um, before, I know we've got to wrap up, but before we go, what do you, what, what does Syria look like post-earthquake? Not, not physically, obviously it's horrific, but does Bashar al-Assad start to become someone who can leave his country and shake hands with leaders elsewhere or does it not change too much? I mean, my, I guess my question, my answer to that would be how many leaders outside of Moscow and a handful of others would want that photo op or would be willing to put up, like forget geopolitics and positioning. Not many people want to be seen shaking this man's hand. So, you know, does he move to a point where he can go to New York and not be arrested at the airport to go visit the United Nations? Maybe, they're probably not. Um, does this, will this kind of help humanize him a tiny bit? Yes. Um, you know, is, is he, does he, has the door cracked a few inches? Absolutely. But fundamentally, he's not going to change. The civil war isn't fully over. The brutality is still very much in place. And people still remember who he is and what he's done. Um, I don't think he's going to be able to buy his way back in to the sort of society of civilized leaders um, because it isn't, this isn't like a situation where there is a, um, there is a, say a coup in a country and a bunch of, you know, say the West doesn't recognize the new leader for a while. And then afterwards the status quo, they slowly get introduced the sort of Maduro situation. Um, Maduro, not, yeah, that's what it, springs to my mind. It, it, this that's not a good parallel here because this isn't this isn't just about who's in power it's about some horrific human human rights crimes and frankly he's not hugely needed in the fold of civilized nations we don't mm, yeah the west doesn't the need bashar al-assad in the tent very frankly and that yeah. i think makes a big difference um if we're being cynical yeah. and we are well, just realistic about the geopolitics. Yeah, no, I completely yeah. agree. All right. Well, that brings us to the end. We're a few minutes late, but uh, hopefully this has been a useful Better than discussion. last week. Better than last week. Exactly. We're getting better. We're improving. We're shutting the hell up for science. Uh, so thank you very much, so much for tuning in, for listening to us. Uh, as always, if you could drop, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you could drop us a like, a subscribe, or a comment, if anything we've said has tickled your fancy or you want to argue with us for being wrong about everything, uh, please do let us know. Yeah. And yeah. And we will, as always, be releasing the podcast version of this without the horror of our faces shortly after this live recording ends. Uh, it would be great if you could recommend it to your friends, drop it a like and subscribe. It'll be on all of your favorite Spotify's and such. And yeah, until next week, uh, I'm Dmitry Gozovinsky. And I'm John Fowler. Thank you very much, guys. You can tell we didn't rehearse that. Uh, and yeah, sign up to uh, International Intrigues newsletter. It's free. We haven't rehearsed great. anything. If we rehearsed, if we rehearsed yeah. stuff, this would be, you know, far more polished. <laughs> <laughs> what a world. <laughs> All right. With that, thanks so much, guys. We'll see you next week.